Welcome to Your Path to Nonprofit Leadership, the weekly podcast that features the very best in strategy and career development in the nonprofit sector. I'm your host, Pat McDowell, and I'm glad to help you on your journey towards senior leadership in the charitable world. Thanks for listening and for your encouragement. I'm glad to bring you these weekly conversations with nonprofit leaders who are on the cutting edge of strategy and professional development in our sector. I had a great conversation this week with Jeff Michael, uh, who in fact uh, has led an organization called the Friday Fellowship, which is focused on leadership development and building community around human relations. So that expertise is combined with his current position. He's now the director of UNC Charlotte's Urban Institute, which is a community outreach and research organization that partners with many nonprofits to seek solutions to the challenges that are facing our communities. Now, one of our headline topics was discussing the Institute's 50th anniversary and how Jeff has used that and how you might use it as a nonprofit leader. How do you maximize an anniversary occasion like that to lift up your history, but more importantly, illustrate where you are going in the future? Jeff also had some great insight on graduate education. He, in fact, has a master's degree and a law degree, but you might be surprised by his take on the need for such a pursuit, depending on your nonprofit career ambitions. And finally, we talked a lot about how your nonprofit organization can better use data and and collaborate with organizations at a university near you, uh, much like the Urban Institute is here in Charlotte. Lots to unpack here, so make sure you check out the show notes. This is episode number 53. Just go to the podcast or the news page at PattonMcDowell.com, and you'll find all of the resources, links, and books that Jeff and I discussed. And, of course, more information on Jeff and the great work he's doing at the Urban Institute. Speaking of resources, make sure you also go to our website and connect with us. We can help your nonprofit with strategic planning, fundraising, or we can maybe help you personally on your journey toward nonprofit leadership through our coaching or training programs. Without further ado, please enjoy my conversation with Jeff Michael. Jeff, thank you for joining me on the path. I am glad to be here, Pat. Uh, Excited to continue conversations you and I have had over the years. You've got a fantastic professional journey that I think our listeners will really benefit from. And of course, you're leading an organization right now with a unique anniversary. And I'd love to to dive into that and talk about how you have maximized that experience and and, and built your organization's mission even further. Um, Before we get into that, though, tell us, how did you get on the nonprofit path? Well, it was certainly a random path, uh, one that I had not uh, set set out to do when I was in school. Um, I uh, got a master's in city and regional planning with my law degree uh, at the same time and uh, really just assumed like many people in law school that I would practice some form of law. But interestingly enough, uh, my uh, last year master's thesis in graduate school, which was in city and regional planning, uh, I was looking at some issues related to uh, sustainable development uh, and regional planning and had an environmental component to it, which just through the process of my research and interviewing and talking with people, 
led to my first job out of school, which was not a law uh, job. And it was to coordinate a, a 10 county regional uh, planning initiative that was looking at economic and environmental issues. And from that work, uh, the opportunity presented itself to both help found a nonprofit organization and be the first director of that, uh, which then led to another opportunity related to the same work and doing conservation uh, for a total of between the two positions around 10 years. I uh, had never envisioned that you know, I would be doing that kind of work and certainly not doing work in the nonprofit sector, but it was the foundation upon which then the rest of my career was built. Uh, so uh, from that, I went and led a statewide leadership program here in North Carolina, and then soon thereafter came to UNC Charlotte to direct uh, an applied research center here called U the Urban Institute. So uh, it was not planned, but I think like many great professional uh, career paths. It's one of those things where opportunity knocked, and if you're open to it, uh, it can really lead to, you know, just really rewarding work and uh, things that um, fulfill you in terms of what really interests you. I love that, Jeff, and and you have absolutely built on the the early days of environmental. Uh, I guess a a mission you still feel strongly about, and I know you apply in your work at the institute now, and of course leadership. Um, I was fortunate to join that program as well, the Friday Fellowship, which we'll talk about and love how you have kind of weaved that all together to, to continue to do the work you do now. Um, let me ask you this, uh, you know, I'm asking a lot of my guests is, is the important work you're doing obviously has had to adapt and be more agile in this virtual environment. How have you found your work has adapted and how have you kind of modified over the last few months to keep the good work of the Institute moving forward? Well, you know, I don't think any of us really could have anticipated uh, how well the virtual communications would work. And we were all certainly skeptical of it before the pandemic. Uh, I think uh, begrudgingly participated in conference calls or uh, teleconference calls. Um, and certainly when we began this period of uh, isolation, um, I think most of us were skeptical that it could serve the needs that we had. And yet it, it really has no Sure, do we have Zoom fatigue and <laughs> right, other right. types of uh, telecommunications um, frustrations? Yes, but for us, I think one of the side benefits once we realized how well it worked was that it required us to be much more intentional about the interactions and the engagement with one another. What we might have taken for granted um, when we were in the office together, you know, seeing one another around uh, water cooler, for example, and, and having conversations about our work, which often led to unique other opportunities or creative thinking uh, between ourselves, those opportunities were no longer there. So I remembered uh, one of our uh, lead staff members who oversees our research team came to me and said, you know, Jeff, I know our weekly research huddles, which is a subset of our staff, is something that you sort of pop in and out of uh, when your schedule permits. But during this period, I think it's really important that they see you and be with you. And, and so I have been more on a weekly basis of sitting in with that team within the Institute. And I've been amazed at, you know, what now I have learned, uh, how connected I feel to their work. And I think that intentionality that uh, this virtual world we're, we're all working in 
has really been a, a, a positive side benefit of all this and, and something that I'm, my mind is already thinking about. Well, when we had that opportunity to come back together in a physical space, what lessons did we learn like that about being more intentional in terms of being together? Such a good example. And you're right. I guess a silver lining, right, has been that new dynamic has allowed you to participate maybe in ways that you couldn't when you're running around campus or running around this region for your other work. Um, Have have you found for you personally a a level of productivity that that you've been able to maintain, I guess, with a very different routine? Yeah, I think so. It's hard really to say at this point because so many of the measures of success from our productivity, I think, are being delayed right Right. now. Certainly for our work where we are serving the public uh, in the form of research around policy issues. Well, for one, there many of our community partners, their focus is elsewhere. Uh, There's also some insecurity and uncertainty around budgets and whether or not um, they they will even have the funds to do the kind of research that we have done for them in the past. But nonetheless, I think we've stayed connected with those partners. Uh, We've had some opportunities because many projects have been put on the back burner to even be more innovative ourselves, to fill our time, to, to look at some issues that maybe we didn't have time to do when we were serving others. And so I really feel like we have been productive in that respect, but whether or not we've been successful in that productivity, only time is going to tell, but that's the nat- always been the nature of our work uh, for an organization that has a long-term horizon and vision. Uh, it's really about building relationships with folks And uh, even though we haven't been able to be physically together with our community partners, I do feel like we've done a good job of staying connected and nurturing those relationships. Yeah, that's impressive. And again, as you said earlier, the intentional nature of your work, and we all need to be intentional about that. And and I'm fascinated by your organization. I think, Jeff, what you just said lifts up long-term thinking by its very nature. In fact, maybe tell us and tell our listeners who aren't familiar, what is the Urban Institute and how it applies to this community, this region, and beyond? Yeah, the Institute is what in the academic world uh, we refer to. It actually has several names, an Applied Research Center, uh, some people refer to us as public service organizations, uh, university-based public service organizations. But the idea is that we are a non-teaching part of the university that nonetheless is embedded in the mission of the university, particularly its uh, academic mission of research, to then use the intellectual capital here to inform policy issues in our community. And we define our community as not just Charlotte itself, but the greater region that is not only urban, but suburban and rural. Uh, We've been around nearly 50 years. Uh, Interestingly enough, UNC Charlotte is a relatively uh, young university. It became part of the UNC system in the mid 1960s, but the establishment of the Urban Institute wasn't that far behind its founding. Uh, uh, We were created in 1969, 50 years ago, and we were established to serve the greater Charlotte region. Uh, Even though we're not a land-grant university, uh, we were asked to serve that same mission of public service and outreach that the great land-use universities have always served uh, to their states, but to do so on behalf of this region. Uh, So yes, this this past year has been our 50th anniversary celebration. It's been both a wonderful time to reflect, but also uh, an opportunity and a uh, to look ahead to the future and, and how do you remain relevant to that core mission? 
do you find Jeff, it's difficult? We, we are such a kind of, um, you know, immediate gratification world and society. Um, and what you are kind of telling us as an Institute is to really look long-term. It, 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 how do you make that case? I guess when you're seeking support partners funding that this is a long-term game we're playing and, and we need to pay attention. Yeah. Uh, you know, I think it, depending on the issue, it, it's sometimes more difficult to make that case than in others. Um, but myself and the, the staff who is here now, we have the good fortune to have inherited not only an organization that is strong and has been doing meaningful work for years, but also a network of relationships, institutional relationships around the region that um, have allowed us to build upon. And most of those community partners, even though the, the faces and the people change, they have a longstanding relationship with us in looking at data longitudinally. So many of them understand that value. They may come to us with an immediate question or issue to help address. You know, maybe it's around affordable housing, which is getting a lot of attention in our community lately, or you know, back 10, 15 years ago, there was a lot more interest than there has been more recently that around issues related to land conservation. And we were always there to right. do a deep dive. But even when we were doing a short-term project like that, almost always you're going back in time to look at some benchmark year or, or period in time to understand how we have changed and, and progressed on that measure to today in hopes then of, of shining a light on what our path forward may be. And so I think even when we're doing those short-term projects, uh, episodic, there is always this longitudinal framework that helps us educate people about the value of looking long-term. Now the real challenge though, because funding is, you know, for these kinds of studies is, uh, always so limited is to try to figure out a funding strategy that allows us to continue that sort of longitudinal research over time so that we're not constantly coming back every 10 years and looking at it. I think right. that's probably the biggest challenge, but uh, that's just a, a challenge of resources. Well, it strikes me as a, a good lesson for a lot of nonprofit organizations. While you want us to pay attention to the future, I guess you can go back and say, hey, look at the environmental impact of growth in this region over the last 10, 20, even almost 50 years. Doesn't that help you maybe make your point when you can indicate the kind of dramatic effects of uh, our community's growth? Absolutely. You know, there was an interesting uh, research project we did about 10 years ago. And this is another thing that's really changed about our work that uh, when we reflected on the 50th anniversary and, and how our work has changed, technology has given us the ability not only to access data that uh, previously would not have been available to researchers, but then to use it, uh, particularly with modeling, uh, to look at historic trends and make assumptions based on uh, the conditions that led to those historic trends, and then look ahead to the future using your models and say, well, if we stay on the same path, this is what it looks like. And so we did this study about 10 years ago that used satellite imagery, looking at land use change throughout the Charlotte region, and um, not only was it educational, the historic trends from 1976 to 2006, and, and it was kind of a wake-up call for people to say, look at the loss of, of open space that we have experienced during that period, during a dramatic period of growth for Charlotte. But because of the technology uh, and the greater uh, sophistication of the kinds of research our, our faculty were doing here on campus, 
we were able to project what those same trends would look like ahead to the year 2030. And again, this was 10 years ago. Uh, and so it just opened up all kinds of conversations about policy. Well, how, how could we change that path? You yes, know, what yes. do and, and that's really the value in the kinds of work that we do, where you look at historic trends, but you're also looking ahead to the future to make decisions. I love that. And I, I'm excited to share. Uh, you've got such good content on your website and, and the study that you referenced and others uh, I want to lift up in our show notes around this episode, because I think uh, there's opportunities. And, and I guess maybe I can speak to that now. Jeff, you partner with so many organizations, I guess, municipal as well as nonprofit. So are there examples or, or if, if I'm a nonprofit and I don't have the research capabilities, um, is that something a nonprofit could, could uh, kind of seek out with, uh, with you? Absolutely. And, you know, another important partner in that is the philanthropic community. Because right. many of these nonprofits, as, as everyone who's in the nonprofit center knows, you're, you're so limited in, in even finding the resources to keep your core programming going that it's oftentimes difficult to do this bigger picture planning and, and research to inform that work. But I, I think one of the things we have been successful here in doing is while developing those relationships with local governments and with nonprofits to also build relationships with the philanthropic community. You know, nearly all of the major foundations are truly invested in not just making, you know, incremental gifts and, you know, moving the ball forward in a slow fashion, but really trying to do systems change. And uh, I think one of the best examples here in our work and, and in this community has been the recent work around the issue of economic mobility and right. economic opportunity. And, and, you know, it's, uh, you know, it's a well-told story now about Charlotte ranking 50th out of 50 in the uh, economic mobility report that came out of Harvard uh, with Raj Chetty and his team. And that really mobilized this community to try to, first of all, understand the issue and then to begin to look at uh, uh, strategies for improving that, that situation. So early on in those conversations, uh, the local community foundation here, the Foundation of the Carolinas invited us as a research partner with a community task force to look at those historic trends. How do we get there? You know, you know, what led to this based on some of the predictive variables that the Chetty team had identified. But even now we're continuing to partner uh, with the foundation, with many nonprofits in this community, <clears throat> including the, the Leading on Opportunity Community, our uh, organization that is uh, really taking the lead on that. But even the researchers from Harvard have made Charlotte one of its pilot cities for the next phase of their work, which is really nice. focused more at the neighborhood level. So it's just a great example of how relationships that go back over time. I mean, we've worked with those same philanthropic institutions on other issues, uh, other topics, affordable housing, environmental issues. And so they know us, they know we are a partner, a research partner, but we're also not the ones on the front line doing the work. That, that those are the people who are working in the nonprofit organizations or the governmental agencies, or even at the neighborhood level, grassroots organizers. And, and our hope is if we're doing our job well, it's those people on the front line who we are assisting by giving them the resources and the tools, the information they need to do their work. Yeah, I love it. it it's such a win-win and, and a nonprofit that doesn't have the ability or the resources can take advantage of the resources you provide. I guess, Jeff, if, if I'm anywhere in the country, uh, the Urban Institute is, is a unique entity, but perhaps there are there related organizations. If, if I'm in whatever community I reside, where would I go on a university campus to find 
resources like yours, or is it indeed very unique to Urban Institute here in Charlotte? No, I think most every university has a, uh, an applied research public service um, function in different ways. I mentioned uh, the land-grant universities uh, are probably most well-known for their support of communities through the Cooperative Extension Service. Now, we right. often associate their work with agriculture and rural communities, but they do so much more. But we are part of a national group called the Consortium of University Public Service Organizations. Uh, we refer to it as CUPSO for short. And it's a diverse group of organizations like ours, some that have a statewide focus, um, like some of the schools and institutes of government that you find uh, at major universities, to those like ours that are more regional in focus. Um, so I think if, if anyone were looking for that resource, uh, I think a good place to start would be a, a national group like CUPSO uh, yeah, to see yeah. you know, who's participating there. But not all organizations at universities and colleges around the country are members of CUPSO. So I think just a starting place would, just, would be to call your, uh, your local university's community affairs office and you know, say, well, who's doing applied research? Who's doing uh, you know, public policy research in our community? And what you'll also find is we're not the only ones at UNC Charlotte, for example, doing this work. Uh, there are a lot of people within our various colleges uh, who are also doing applied research. Uh, they're not able to do it in as focused you know, way with quite the level of resources we have because they are also then teaching and you know, re doing research to be published, but nonetheless are doing great work. And, and our work is really dependent on partnering with many of them. Uh, you know, I think when I mentioned earlier that a big part of our mission is to connect the intellectual capital of this university to the great needs of this region. It's not just what we have on our staff. If we're really doing our job well, we're also connecting with incredible talent that's on this campus across many colleges and departments. I love that. And of course, the very nature of applied research, isn't it, Jeff, that you want frontline connections with uh, partners who are doing the work and involved in the communities you're trying to study. And so I just, I think that's good advice that nonprofit leaders anywhere might want to consider the resources at their local institutions because they are likely inclined to, to want to partner. Absolutely. Let me ask you this. Um, every nonprofit has an anniversary coming up, <laughs> whether it's yeah. one year, 50 years or 150. Uh, talk if you would about, let's say a couple years ago as the 50th approached, what was your strategic kind of thinking as to how you wanted to maximize your 50th anniversary? Yeah. And I, I hope I don't embarrass you by giving you a little shout out because you <laughs> were a part of that conversation for us uh, when we were doing some five-year strategic planning and thinking about uh, that 50th anniversary. And, and at the time, what we were, the, one of the fundamental questions we were asking ourselves was, well, we've had nearly at that time, nearly 50 years of success in serving this region. And, this is certainly an opportunity and a time to reflect on that and celebrate it. But the more important question is, what do we need to do to position ourselves to continue to be relevant uh, looking ahead? And so a, lo a lot of the conversation that took place in that strategic planning effort was around that very question. And, you know, it, it led us to um, ask a lot of fundamental questions about who we were, you know, uh, because of the explosion of talent on this campus and, you know, greater levels of uh, you know, engagement and research, even in non-academic settings in this community, uh, mostly around more niche topics and issues like housing or the environment. You know, one of the questions we asked ourselves was, well, do we need to um, 
stop being these great, this great generalist right. uh, in this region and maybe focus more uh, singularly on some topic or set of topics. But Specialized, a, kind of a specialization of some sort? That's right, a specialization, exactly. And, and so that was, on, that was on the table, you know, to ask that question. But uh, as, as all good strategic planning does, you know, we didn't just ask that question of ourselves in a vacuum, but really went out in the community and also here on the, uh, the campus and asked that question. And, and we were somewhat surprised that people came back and said, no, we still need a great journalist, someone who can help connect the dots between these different issues. And, and so that became a real, I think, uh, kind of central point of our planning for the future. Now, in doing that, though, we realized some other things that we had to figure out how to move into the 21st century in terms of both doing the research, but also then conveying that information, disseminating it, and telling the story around these issues. And so much of that was based on technology, uh, recognizing the power of technology, not only in, in our research, uh, getting, gaining greater access to, to data and what I mentioned earlier about uh, the great potential of models uh, to do some of this research, um, but also in the dissemination piece to embrace the web, not just as an electronic brochure of who we are, where you come and get our contact information, but to really uh, what we ended up doing, barring a term of a, a friend and colleague in Chapel Hill who referred to it as the marrying of journalism and think tanking. Interesting. Uh, we, we really started investing more in our web communications and thinking of it more journalistically and creating a, a forum for the community to engage in these issues through thoughtful articles, through interactive uh, maps and graphs. Uh, and, and other types of multimedia approaches, uh, including we, we haven't been doing podcasts, but we have been doing video interviews embedded in our articles. And I think the storytelling piece is part of both that and the, the greater sophistication and the use of technology in, in our research has allowed us to adapt in ways. I mean, I think there's always going to be a need in the community for a resource like the Institute, a university-based resource but it doesn't mean we're gonna remain relevant if we aren't meeting people where they expect to be met. And I think uh, the web in particular, really it told us that we have to figure out how to connect with people to engage in these issues, not by abandoning our live engagement work. Right. Uh, that's still an important part of what we do with conferences and forums, but there has to be this other component. And of course now we're, you know, we're doing more in the, the realm of social media to further connect people. And, and timely, right? I mean, even uh, you were on this very good path uh, in terms of better communication engagement, and now we're all uh, more, I guess, stuck in a virtual environment. So even better that you've got this kind of online engagement. Is it paying off, Jeff? Are you seeing kind of early results that people are willing and able to engage in your online kind of forums? They are, and you know, it's really fascinating and, and particularly, uh, you know, trusting the younger staff as they throw new ideas at you. Um, <laughs> right. I'm, probably, I'm probably one of the last people to sign up for Twitter. And I, I did this spring <laughs> uh, in part because we did a great report um, that was uh, looking at the racial wealth gap here in Charlotte, Mecklenburg County last year. Very important part of the conversation about economic mobility. And uh, like most of our reports, it was very graphic heavy with maps and charts and narrative. But they came up with the idea to do something called a Twitter chat. Uh, we called it Wealth Gap Wednesdays. And Interesting. 
Uh, we did it about seven weeks in a row. Uh, a local community leader, James Ford, uh, along with one of our staff members who oversees our web communications, Eli Patia, uh, moderated it. I had no idea what that meant. And so I had to join Twitter. But it was fascinating to see people uh, with the constraints of you know, very limited characters that they could type and in a totally virtual way uh, engage around a set of questions that we would put out every week to discuss and explore some aspect of the racial wealth gap. And it was just another example, to me anyway, that there is a hunger for this type of connection and engagement. And one of the things you, your question was, have we seen it pay off? This is probably more anecdotal. I, I really don't have much in the way of metrics, but after 17 years here, I do feel like our, our research and the opportunities that are being presented to us to do more work uh, around some really important issues here has corresponded. I mean, there's been, it feels at least like there's been this upturn in that, that corresponds really nicely to that point in time when we really started investing more in our online engagement. I think one of the reasons for that is when people in more unofficial ways are seeing your work or seeing you as a resource to, you know, understand these issues, then you're, you're present in their minds when they, whether it's in their leadership roles at a nonprofit or a local governmental agency or a philanthropic community, whatever, they're like, you know, those folks might be a resource for us. So I think the two are definitely connected. Love that. And, and gosh, what a great case study. And you and I both, um, not as long as you, but I spent some time on uh, college campuses and, and sometimes I think we can get buried in our own uh, academia. And so I love the case study, frankly, Jeff, you represent of, of translating uh, what might be more difficult to absorb. Uh, you've created some cool and creative ways. So what did you say that Wednesday program is again? We, we need to look uh, well, it was, it was a, Yeah, it was a time limited one. It was, uh, gotcha. so, so we're not doing it. It was for seven weeks back in uh, May and June, but it was called Wealth Gap Wednesday, hashtag Wealth Gap Wednesdays. And it was uh, just a conversation through Twitter uh, about the racial wealth gap and the report that we had done. And we would, you know, the team was great because they would throw up, you know, some of the graphic charts that were from the report and then challenge, you know, folks, well, what do you think about this? Yes. And yes. This wealth of feedback that people had, whether they were personal stories or their own understanding of the issues. And uh, I think it was just another example. Uh, and fortunate for us, a good experience that it will continue to make us receptive to being, uh, creative and, and comfortable with the use of social media to tell our story. Love it. And I want to lift it up to our nonprofit leaders because I think too often we're guilty of our websites are just uh, brochures online and yep. we have to create engagement. And every one of these nonprofit leaders we know, Jeff, have good uh, topics uh, around which they can engage, but I often think Absolutely. they don't. And so, as a, uh, a relative newcomer that you and I are to Twitter, uh, we need to encourage our friends to consider <laughs> new means of uh, social media, right? That's right. And, and trust your, uh, you know, particularly the younger talent. Uh, you know, I think sometimes uh, those of us that have been around a while, uh, you know, get stuck in our old ways of doing things. But Indeed. there is so much innovation that comes from trusting that younger voice. But on the other hand, you know, I, this is another thing coming back to something we said earlier uh, in when we were talking about strategic planning and the value of strategic planning. I, I really believe this and others may disagree with me, but I think 
leadership today in the nonprofit world uh, really is dependent on embracing some of the old and the new. Uh, you know, I had a conversation with a, a really uh, prominent leader in this community a few years ago who was also relatively young uh, to be in that role, who really questioned, it was a, it was a healthy conversation, uh, right. friendly discussion, but he really questioned the value of strategic planning and said the world is you know, changing too quickly. We don't have time for these five-year strategic plans. And, you know, I listened very carefully because I, <laughs> I felt like, well, there may be some real wisdom to that. Maybe yeah. I'm you know, too slow to change because I, I, I was brought up during an era when strategic thinking was so important to your long-term health as an organization. And yet now, five years later, I, even with all the change that we see, I, I think our ability to, to adapt and be nimble in, in periods of change have often benefited from some strategic thinking we might have done a few years because then you kind of have a sense of where you're going that when those unexpected things happen you know we were just talking about you know earlier the pandemic and how you know it has caused us all very rapidly to have to shift well i think our ability to do that was in part informed by some decisions we made two three four years ago from our strategic planning that prepared us to adapt quickly and so i think it's a both and Good. Um, yep. But my point is, we, we, we can't, as leaders, um, not be listening to the next generation, our younger staff and talent, because they have so much to contribute to, to help us all continue to be relevant. And new ways of thinking, right, as you Absolutely. said, and, and good for you. And to your credit, you're, you're open to new ideas, even if we don't always agree. And in mm -hmm. fact, it's a perfect segue to the question I was going to ask you. You and, and the Urban Institute, frankly, are experts in long-range planning but so many of our nonprofit friends are struggling right now with um, just getting through the next, you know, six, 12 and 18 months, uh, much less long-term. How are you and the Institute doing strategic planning right now? Are, are you kind of, is it a both and that you kind of look at a short-term operating plan and well, long-term? Yeah. yeah. We're sort of in limbo like so many folks, uh, you know, the first couple of months, well, coming out of our 50th anniversary celebration, last year, we had anticipated and planned to immediately begin after that celebration in November uh, this past spring to launch our next strategic planning effort and uh, to begin to frame it, look for someone as a consultant to assist us with that. But then come March, uh, the pandemic hit and uh, we had to go like everyone else into survival mode and uh, adjusting how we did our work. So we had to put that to the back burner. And yet, we have not given up on it. And one of the things that I think has been a blessing in many ways, um, you know, whether it's the lack of a commute to work because you're working from home or uh, you're not interrupted by as many meetings, but nonetheless, for me as director, I feel like I've had more time to, to reflect and think strategically about what it would be that we'd be looking for in this next strategic planning effort. Right. Uh, I've been able to get some of those thoughts down and articulate them and even to have begun conversations with folks about, you know, how might we approach this if we decide to launch it this year? Uh, now, what I don't know is, you know, most strategic planning work, if it's really done well, places a premium on engagement. Uh, engagement as staff, engagement with community partners, uh, colleagues here at the university. And 
I don't know if that works as well online as um, other kinds of meetings. Right. Maybe, right. maybe it does. And so that's one of the things we're trying to reflect on now is do we just put it on hold uh, for another six months before we try to launch that process? But I don't think this time has been and should be viewed as a, a, a lost period of time in that strategic planning work because if anything, it's been an opportunity to really hone in a little bit more on what it is we'll be looking for in that. Yeah. Well put. And I think that's good advice. And as much as there's uncertainty, we can't just sit around and wait. We have to still be a proactive, I think in short and long range planning because yep. you know, the missions of our organization support need us uh, yep. in that regard. But Jeff, let me shift gears on you. Um, you have been um, a great advocate of lifelong learning. Certainly your professional experience has been enhanced by graduate education. And a question I often get and want to pose to you is, it, should I pursue a graduate degree? Uh, you've got a couple. Um, so I wonder if you might comment on the value of that graduate education you pursued or other professional development milestones that continue to, to kind of help you now. Yeah. Well, first of all, I think it really does depend on the field and the discipline. Clearly at a university where there is such a premium placed on credentials, uh, there, there is a certain prerequisite for degrees. And so right. I think anyone who actually would be looking at our work and uh, would have an interest in getting involved in that field, absolutely, at a minimum, a master's degree uh, is something you'll be looking to have and perhaps even depending on the level of research and uh, leadership uh, you might aspire to uh, going beyond that with a terminal degree. Uh, mine is, is not a PhD, it's a JD, but nonetheless a terminal degree. Now having said that, I don't know necessarily that a graduate degree is an essential to, to you know, be a leader in so many of the fields that we support and engage with in the community around any number of issues. Now, do I value a graduate degree? Absolutely. I think um, there's so much that one gains, uh, not only in becoming more expert in a particular discipline, but just uh, the exposure to ideas and ways of thinking that comes from a graduate school education. Having said that, some of the best leaders that I have worked with in our community are people who uh, maybe have just a college degree and sometimes even less than that. And what makes them great leaders is a combination of one passion for what it is that they are working on, uh, whether it's a neighborhood issue or a larger regional issue. Uh, but it also comes from, we talk about lifelong learning. Well, lifelong learning can come in many ways. Uh, it doesn't have to come from a formal education. Uh, it can come from participating in opportunities, uh, whether they're conferences, forums, uh, conversations and with the web today to find trusted sources of information to educate oneself around these issues. But above all of that, though, then once you've perhaps created an opportunity or found an opportunity as an entree into the field uh, where you're passionate about listening to others, nurturing relationships and a willingness then to roll up your sleeves and really do the work. That's what I think really um, creates leaders. And so I guess as listeners who are interested in the nonprofit field and either because they just aren't interested in graduate school or maybe graduate school is 
a barrier in terms of financial ability, right. whatever. Right. I don't think it should be a barrier to their uh, desire and passion and to enter the nonprofit field, particularly around a certain sector, because I think there are other points of entry. Um, but once that point of entry has uh, been identified, these other elements of, you know, passion, hard work, uh, care for other people. Um, but there is then, I think, uh, an element of ongoing uh, continued education, uh, lifelong learning, though, once you right. do enter that field, it just may look different than a graduate degree. Uh, that's a great uh, analysis. And you're right. It, it's not fair to oversimplify it to say graduate degree or not as an all or nothing question. Um, but you put it very, uh, very well. Um, you also, Jeff, have been an advocate of leadership development. In fact, you led a leadership development organization, the Friday Fellowship, an organization that I'm a big fan. Um, do you, how do you advocate for that type of program? I'm sure you do and, and did very well when you were leading that organization. But I wonder if you might speak to the value of programs like that. Well, I think they are, uh, gosh, um, just extraordinary opportunities if one is lucky enough to have that opportunity. And, and we talked about education, sometimes cost being a barrier. And I know many leadership programs uh, come with a cost as well, and, and they're not always available to, to everyone. But where I think the greatest value in these leadership programs, you know, many of the, the books and the uh, literature that they draw upon um, to discuss leadership uh, is accessible really to anyone. Um, you know, they could probably find many of them in libraries. Uh, certainly there are lots of self-help books out there. But I think the real value of the leadership programs is the human connection and the engagement piece. Uh, to be in sessions uh, with a level of intentionality, set aside from your daily work, uh, uh, your daily activities in life, uh, to discuss very difficult issues about what it means to be a leader, uh, a leader in the context of very sticky uh, societal issues that we're all wrestling with. Um, and to feel like you have that safe space to have those conversations, to get messy, uh, as you know, in the program that we were both a part of, <laughs> right. uh, not so much about. And unfortunately, you know, while it's artificial, uh, having that kind of environment uh, to get messy and have these conversations, it is so valuable to, as a leader anyway, to um, then be able to go back and apply your thinking to real, real world examples. And I've thought a lot about, you know, first of all, I would say, and that's your question, anyone who has an opportunity to participate in a, in a leadership program like that, whether it's at the local level, statewide level, like one you and I participated in or otherwise, please do take advantage of it. I, I don't think people will regret it. And yet at the, the same time, I'm cognizant, we talk a lot about privilege today and not everyone has that privilege. Uh, again, they can be expensive. Uh, any corporations pay for them, but if you work for a nonprofit, that can be a luxury, perhaps that you, your organization doesn't have to put you through one of these leadership programs. And what I would say to people there is don't underestimate the value of peer mentorship. Uh, when I led that leadership program that you referred to, we talked a lot about peer mentors. Well, what does that mean? It means you're not just looking for people who are older and wiser, who uh, can you know, shed some light on the path you're on because they've been there before. Yes, those kinds of mentors are important and we should all be seeking them out. 
but we, I think, underestimate the value of people who are at the same place in their path, uh, in their professional careers as we are, uh, who are struggling with some of the same issues. And so I think there are opportunities to create those kinds of environments for those same kinds of safe conversations uh, to wrestle with these issues that I think are available to those who participate in these leadership programs. I love that idea, Jeff, and you're right. As much as we hope there is access for anyone that would like to participate, there, there are also opportunities to create your own leadership curriculum, aren't there, or network uh, by reaching out because I think most of our colleagues uh, and that have had experience are willing, if you're respectful in your outreach, <laughs> that you'd be willing to talk to them, right, and offer some advice, if, if not through a formal program, but informally at least, that can be very valuable. And I'm guessing you would agree with me that the network we've made through programs like the Friday Fellowship continue to this day. Absolutely. And, you know, I think that is the real uh, one of the other real powers of these leadership programs that perhaps can be replicated in other ways. And I think every nonprofit leader uh, who is successful will point to that network of relationships uh, at all levels that uh, sustains their work and allows them to move forward uh, in their strategic, strategic paths. And so uh, it's another one of those things that um, the leadership programs, the really good leadership programs, I think do a great job of is not only creating that experience in the moment when you are participating, but then to have that lifelong network of peers that you can call, call upon. And, and that really is the essence of what I was referring to in terms of the peer network, uh, the peer mentoring, uh, is that it is about having a network of people that you can trust, that you can call upon, because you know, there is no uh, owner's manual <laughs> to exactly. being a, a nonprofit leader. There, there just isn't. Uh, and the best we can do is reach out to those who either, again, have been down that path before or who are going through it at the same time with you and gaining the, the value of, of their wisdom, their experience. And if you're lucky and you've got a diverse network of peers, um, those differences in experience will certainly shape uh, or inform the way you think of issues uh, very different than what you would have been able to do based on your own uh, experiences. Yeah, so well put. And Jeff, you've provided a wealth of uh, good advice for someone who is on the path. And I guess I've uh, closed this section of our conversation with, is there anything else, you know, when someone sits down with you for coffee and says, Jeff, uh, you know, I'd like to follow on a path like you have been on, is there anything else you would lift up or perhaps reinforce that you've already shared? Um, not necessarily other than um, be open and comfortable with the unconventional. Uh, you know, I, I mentioned how I ended up in this work. And um, again, I never, when I was in law school, I never anticipated that, first of all, that I would get a graduate degree in city and regional planning. Uh, that was something that wasn't on my radar screen, but I, I wasn't necessarily excited about that first year of law school, uh, in large part because I couldn't see its relevance to what really uh, excited me. Really? You know, at, yeah. at that age, yeah. that I could even define what excited me. But uh, fortunately, I had a, the, the dean of uh, admissions at my law school was someone I had known undergrad, and she just had a great way of listening. And instead of even talking about law school, she, uh, she started asking me questions about things that interested me. And somehow she drew out of that uh, conversation that I had an interest in cities and 
communities and planning and how they evolved over time. And she was the one that recommended I do the joint degree in city and regional planning. Well, that simple conversation and being open to it uh, when she recommended that I pursue that joint degree really changed my career path. And, wow. and I have found when I reflect back, even professionally, uh, as I have made certain decisions and um, moves, that it often came about in the same way, that I was open to thinking of something in a different way, usually informed by the perspective of others uh, or their ability to ask questions in a thoughtful way uh, that allowed me to discover these things within myself. And, and I think that's true for all of us. Uh, but there's so much convention out there. I mean, we, we like to think that there is a, you know, there is a, this linear approach to everything we do. Yeah. And right. I guess I use the term unconventionality, but I think maybe it's just a willingness to be nonlinear. Fantastic advice. A perfect way to close our professional development conversation, or at least that portion of our conversation. Jeff, one final request, a, a parting gift, if you will, to our listeners. Um, how about a book or two um, that you might encourage us to read that uh, maybe has impacted you? Yeah. Uh, you know, I um, maybe I, after talking about uh, change and uh, being open uh, to change, this may seem a little old school, but uh, <laughs> I, um, I still come back to Ron Heifetz and his work. Uh, I, I've already forgotten most of the names of his various books. Leadership Without Easy Answers, I think, is one of them. But yeah. uh, I think he did such a great job out of his work there at Harvard of the use of metaphor uh, for helping us understand our roles as leaders, everything from his uh, you know, balcony metaphor about as a leader, sometimes you're on the dance floor and other times you're on the balcony, you got to see the big picture uh, to his discussion uh, and reflecting on the relationship between Martin Luther King and Lyndon Johnson uh, and the notion of leadership uh, to, to ripen issues so that we can move forward. You know, sometimes you, you have to think of it like a pressure cooker to create that pressure uh, for the steam to eventually move us forward with change. There's just so many things I think about his work that, again, I think it's that, use, that. Of, that use of metaphor that helps us relate yeah. it to the everyday decisions we're making. Now, having said that, I, I also, there, there's lots of great uh, leadership books out there. Uh, there's also great literature around nonprofit management. Um, but I, I often tell people don't underestimate talking about lifelong learning never underestimate the uh, value of the classics. And by, by classics, I don't mean any sort of, you know, sort of great Western canon necessarily. Uh, books that Shakespeare, everyone you're not going back Shakespeare, to Shakespeare. Or, you know, yeah. whatever, no. Uh, but just things that probably we all should have read along the way, but maybe didn't in college yeah. or yeah. high school. And, you know, as an example, uh, for whatever reason, uh, I can't really say why, uh, but when we went into the quarantine mode back in March, I, uh, picked up an old volume of, uh, it was an old Library of America volume of James Baldwin essays. This was in mid-March, and it was just something to read uh, uh, to pass away the time. Uh, yeah, I'm sure I read a little bit of James Baldwin in college, but not uh, in the same way that probably someone uh, who is an uh, English major might have. But to read his book of essays, or this collection of essays, just prior to what we have experienced as a country, uh, you know, in response to George Floyd killings and the unrest uh, that we have experienced, 
to not only have already been reading, but still be in the middle of reading that, it, it really just, um, I don't know, it put a frame of understanding around the issues we're all struggling with. That even someone like me, who through our leadership program we were talking about early, earlier, always had a, uh, a real focus on issues related to diversity and multiculturalism. Nonetheless, it was like this aha moment of what I didn't know, what I did not understand uh, from a black person's perspective. And in the process of, of you know, wrestling with those issues in my mind and my head, uh, it has really caused me to come back and uh, think about even our work here at the Institute. You know, we like to think and pride ourselves on the fact that we're doing great work. Uh, and in many ways, I think we are around many of these issues, these very difficult issues from economic mobility to affordable housing. But nonetheless, we need to continue to challenge ourselves uh, to think about how we're approaching that work uh, uh, ethically uh, in terms of how we use data, uh, whether or not we are in our own makeup and our own biases uh, influencing our work in ways that reflect who we are instead of the community we serve. And so um, I just use that as one example. Love it. And I think yeah. you can go down the list of any uh, great works of literature that part of their staying power is not just that they're well written and the craft of writing, but most of the times they're dealing with big issues that uh, if you're willing to just constantly you know, be reading, uh, you'll, you'll find some relevance to your daily work. Yep. Jeff, could not say that any better. Thank you for leading uh, by example. And it's, it is, in fact, why this element of the podcast uh, always features great literature. And so I'm grateful you're willing to share things that have been meaningful to you and the lessons you are taking from uh, both of these uh, authors are ones that certainly could apply to anyone and uh, good stuff. Thank you. Um, Jeff, it's been fantastic uh, to catch up with you. And I know our listeners benefit from this. Uh, the show notes will certainly include the resources you and I have discussed. And of course, I'm going to take them right to the Urban Institute's um, new and improved website, given all that you've done there. Is there anything else that you would maybe call to their attention as far as the work you're doing at the Institute? No, I think we, uh, there's a lot there on the website. So when you provide that, uh, but certainly if there's anything that uh, folks see there and um, feel like that uh, we can uh, assist them in understanding it further in their own communities. Um, we're open to people reaching out to us. So I appreciate the opportunity to share. That's perfect, Jeff. Thank you again for joining me on the path. Well, thank you, Patton. And uh, look forward to the next conversation we have together. Well, I hope you enjoyed this conversation with Jeff as much as I did and came away with some practical ideas that not only can guide your professional journey, but maybe give you some ideas about how your nonprofit can enhance the value of its next major anniversary. Or maybe find a university partner like the Urban Institute near you. In fact, that's a good reason to check out the show notes for this episode. Uh, again, just go to the podcast or the news page at patmcdowell.com. And you can find uh, links to information like the acronym is CUPSO, uh, which is a directory of uh, university resource centers and institutes like Jeff's Urban Institute. Find a partner near you 
and hopefully that will be of value. As always, please share this episode with somebody else on the path. If you haven't already, you can also subscribe by going to the podcast page at patmcdowell.com, and you'll see links to Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and all of the primary platforms. Don't miss out on any of our weekly episodes. They come out every Thursday, as well as bonus features we're producing at least once a month. Thanks for all you're doing in the nonprofit sector, especially right now. And keep up the good work for causes that are most meaningful to you. I'll keep bringing you content that can help you do it even better. Have a great week, and I'll see you next time on The Path.